think that's what's at operation here in this text and why Isaiah moves to what he says in Isaiah 46. So I want to ask a few questions of application and then we'll move right into reading the text. What motivates you? What has captivated your heart and mind? What moves your thoughts, words, and deeds? As Counselor David Powelson asked, has something or someone besides Jesus the Christ taken title to your heart's trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? Just some things to ponder as we read and walk through this passage together. Let's read, picking up with verse 1 in chapter 46. Baal bows down, Nebo stoops. Their idols are on beasts and livestock. These things you carry are borne as burdens on weary beasts. They stoop. They bow down together. They cannot save the burden, but themselves go into captivity. Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb. Even to your old age I am he, and to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made, and I will bear. I will carry, and will save. To whom will you liken me, and make me equal, and compare me, that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse, and weigh out silver in the scales, hire a goldsmith, and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place. It stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old. For I am God, there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel will stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose, calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed, and I will do it. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. This is God's word. The grass withers and flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray together. The Holy Spirit, stir us up. Grant light to our eyes. Grant warmth to our heart. Give us a zeal for your word and ultimately a love, a white-hot love for you that is unshakable, that is undeterred, that is fixated on your glory. Oh, Lord, do that. Lord, I offer these five loaves and two fish, and I pray that you would multiply it for your people, for your glory. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. O God, my rock and my redeemer, we pray this all as God's people in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people say, Amen. I'll never forget the fall of 2012, the day after the presidential election. President Obama was elected as his second term of president. I was sitting in Psalms and Wisdom class in seminary in St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, as is custom, our professor would start the class by asking, hey, is there anything we can pray about? Several classmates chipped in about different things. And then one classmate in particular raised his hand. He said, please pray for my wife. After last night's 
results of the election, she no longer wants to live. And I thought, whoa, man. It jarred me, thinking, seriously, what's going on there? What's happening with that such dire language? And then and there I saw just, just one evidence of idolatry, setting up a political thought, a political um, person as a deliverer. And if that person did not win, if the other person won, then there was a depression. They were demoralized. This is what idolatry is. It's setting something or someone up as a pinnacle, a, 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 a goal in life from which you derive delight or satisfaction or joy. And when that is not met or that person doesn't arrive or rise to the top, then you are left with nothing but despair. Idolatry, though it takes different forms than Isaiah's day, is still alive and well in our world and, unfortunately, in our church. Devotion to an idol eats away at the inner self. It divides people. It disrupts families. It destroys families. Because you have to have that thing. If you don't get that thing, you are embroiled in frustration, despair, anger. Here's our main point today. God calls you to repent of idolatry and gaze at His glory in the person of Jesus Christ. He calls you away from idolatry and He calls you to Himself. Over and over again, He's done that with Israel. He's doing that now. He's doing that for us. Turn away, He says. Come to Me. Examine your hearts. Know what's in there. And be freed in full-fledged worship. I want to walk through our passage with two points. First point, recognize and reject your idols. So R&R, recognize and reject. And then second point, remember and rejoice in your God. So recognize and reject, remember and rejoice. Let's go there. Before we dive in, I want to point out the obvious. Making of idols for worship was forbidden at Mount Sinai. Second commandment. Let me read it to you. Exodus 20, verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. And so I believe in our passage, verse 5 here is a direct allusion to the second commandment. God asks the question, to whom will you compare me? You can't make an image of me. That just boils me down to something I am not. I'm far beyond what you think or imagine. And you can't contain my image. You can't contain my character, my power in some idol in shape or form, some crafted image. Now, as Protestant Reformed Presbyterians, we take this very seriously. We do not have statues of Mary or Jesus or God the Father to venerate or worship in any way. And so we reject that, but often what happens, what slides in the back door in a vacuum is is not an object per se, but an idea. Because that's what's at play even when there were objects made. There was an idea of power, so to speak, behind that object that, which the person was seeking deliverance from some sort of pain or despair or ultimate salvation. So we need to look deeply into our hearts and rummage around and work on recognizing idols. Isaiah begins with the chief of uh, gods of Babylon, Bel and Nebo. These are, these are the, the pinnacle of the pantheon of gods in Babylon. What does he say about them? He portrays them as bowing down and stooping. 
So the worshipers are supposed to bow down and stoop to these idols, but Isaiah says, no, these idols are actually bowing down and stooping. In other words, they are weak and powerless, so much so that they have to be carried by the worshiper. Notice he says, you carry and they are burdens to your beasts. Verse 1 and 2. And again in verse 2 it says, idols bow and stoop and themselves go into captivity. The review here, idols are impotent, paralyzed, burdensome, and finally exiled themselves. Look at verse 6. Gold is given to, to make it. A goldsmith is hired to fashion it. And then with exasperation and I think a bit of sarcasm, Isaiah says they do all this and then they fall down and worship it. They've got to carry their own gods and then they worship those gods. Verse 7 is a repetition. It needs to be carried. It needs to be set in place. It's immovable, inanimate, deaf and dumb. What folly. You think about our, our theme today. Isaiah saying the opposite of these idols. They can't hear and they can't speak and they can't help you. Is what he's saying here about the idols of Babylon. So is it costly? Is idolatry costly? You bet. Gold had to be attained, and a goldsmith hired, and lots of work put into it. So it's very costly both for the worshiper and those who were constructing them. So not only is idolatry burdensome, it is costly, it, 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 it requires much work. So who's paying the debt? Well, not the idol. Who's paying the debt for the idol to be made? Not the idol. It's the worshiper. There's much extracted, much given toward the making and the bowing down to this idol. Okay, so, how does this, what does this look like in our lives? I mean, we, we can look back to Isaiah's day, we can look back to Babylon, the temptation of Israel, we can, we're called not to look down our nose, because why? Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. Our hearts, in many ways, are the same, though idols may look different on the external. So how do we recognize them? I want to give you a definition uh, that I think is helpful from uh, uh, Pastor Tim Keller. He says, The sign of idolatry is always inordinate anxiety, inordinate anger, and inordinate, inordinate discouragement. Listen to this. Idols are good things, family, achievement, work, career, romance, talent, etc., that we turn into ultimate things in order to get the significance we enjoy, we need. Then they drive us into the ground because we have to have them. If we lose a good thing, it makes us sad. If we lose an idol, it devastates us. Say that again. If we lose a good thing, it makes us sad. If we lose an idol, it devastates us. Martin Luther wrote a treatise on the Ten Commandments, and he actually, his, his main thesis was, when you break the second through the tenth commandment, you're, you're breaking the first commandment. In other words, when you sin, you are first sinning by committing idolatry. You're setting something up. There's another Lord or Master over your life, and you need to figure out what that Lord and Master is because God is calling you to number one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. John Calvin in his institute stated that our hearts are idol factories. You may say, well, Caleb, where do we see this in the New Testament? We see all the, the fashioning of idols in the Old Testament. Where, where is it explained in the New 
If you've read 1 John, the little book near the end of the New Testament, he, it, it's, a, it's a letter of a testing of faith. What does it to mean to believe in Christ? And at the very end, you know what the last verse says? A little children, keep yourself from idols. Ephesians 5, 5 names covetousness as idolatry. Colossians 3, 5 states this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then last and most clearly, Romans 1, 25, it says, They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. And so we see a a movement into a broader definition of what is idolatry, even in the New Testament. We can see that also in our hearts. So I want to work through just a couple. What what are big ones that I think uh, that we would commonly wrestle with? Well, one is approval. We could call it a, a fear of man. So maybe seeking approval, if that's your idol, you spend inordinate amounts of money on fitness, cosmetics, and age-defying products in order to fit into your friend group or a strata of society. Or you refrain from speaking out against certain cultural sins because you don't want to be labeled a bigot. Or you tell little white lies at work so that your performance looks better than it really is. Or maybe you spend inordinate amounts of time on social media trying to post the perfect pictures so that you'll look good for everybody around you. Seeking the approval of people around you, and when that is dashed to the ground, guess what happens? Watch your heart. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart for out of the abundance of the heart flows all of life. Guard your heart. Watch your heart. Pay attention to how your heart works. Why do you do what you do? What makes you tick? That's approval. Another one, success or significance. Maybe you work 60 to 80 hours a week neglecting your family and Sabbath worship in the hopes of climbing the ladder of success. Or you're demoralized and angry when your child makes less than 100 on an exam because you anchor your success or worth in their success. Or, if your child has a rough game, whatever sport, you get home and you're just eaten up with a critical spirit. The refs, the coach, and maybe even your own child. Why? Why do you do that? Because deep down there's something in you that you are worshiping and you did not get it in that moment. Therefore, you're moved to a critical spirit against all those who have inhibited your worship your delight, your devotion, your so-called peace in life. I'll never forget, um, I'll just say this, I love baseball. If you know me, you know I love the sport of baseball. I, I, I was able to play it in high school and then going to play in college. Uh, played at Enterprise State Junior College, had a pretty good career there for two years and then went to AUM and began to play my junior year. And for some reason, I'm not sure how this happened, but baseball became larger than life for me. It became that thing by which I was trying to derive my significance and joy and delight in even my validation for being human in that. I'll never forget how this played out. Uh, I would have a bad game. I would go home, and I would be demoralized. There you go. That's step one. 
Then I'd have another bad game. Go home, be demoralized, and then pelt myself in shame. Oh, man, I don't deserve to be playing baseball. I don't deserve to be on this team. All the way down to I don't deserve to be a friend. People don't like me because I can't pitch well. And it began to be a snowball effect by which I fell into a performance-based identity. Because why? Because deep down I had something or someone else. I had baseball set up. I wanted baseball to tell me, you're my son in whom I'm well pleased. Baseball cannot do that. Neither can anyone except God the Father through Christ. He does that. He says through Christ, you are my son and daughter in you I am well pleased. That is the gospel. And that's what God is urging Israel to see, is to move away from these things and urging us. Now, the tricky part is our response. How do we reject idols? We, we want to watch our heart, but how do we reject them? Well, the common thought is, well, I'll just not do social media, or I'll just work less hours, or I'll just not play baseball. Well, that's, uh, you're just moving the external chess pieces. You're not really dealing with what's in your heart. You're actually moving those things around, and you're going to fill something with that vacuum if you don't work on your heart first. Okay? Externals, that may be a right step and one of the steps, but it's not the ultimate step. It's a heart orientation. So how do we do this? How do we reject? Well, this moves to our second point because it's one and the same. Repentance and moving. Repentance is one of rejecting idols and moving toward God. Let me explain. Back to our passage. Look at verses 8 and 9. God says, remember, call to mind, remember. And you know, in in, in the Hebrew text, when anything's repeated, you you need to pay attention. So God is saying, remember what? He says, "I I am God and there is no other. There is none like me. Well, what is God like? Well, he says it here. Verse 10, he is timeless. He's all-powerful and all-knowing. He actually created time and ordered all the events in time and space to happen exactly as they are from the beginning and creation of time to the very end of time. And he sees it all. God is outside of time. He said, I've ordered this. This is what we call providence, as Rusty highlighted last week. His counsel, God's counsel or decrees stand and no one thwarts his purpose. So remember, that is God. That's the God we serve. Also, look at verse 11. It alludes to Cyrus. This bird of prey says, I call a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel. And this is where earlier I was tying in what's happened before to now because God is saying, this is my counsel. I have chosen to do it this way. And my way is good and holy and perfect. It is the right person in the right time. Then the exclamation point, I have spoken, I will bring it to pass, I have purposed it. What's the point? Remember, he's saying this, remember Israel, I'm all powerful. And all that I do is wise and good. You may not like my plan to you, Cyrus, but don't turn to idols seeking a better plan for your life. That goes for us. We may not like how our life is folding out, but guess what? You're not on plan B. If you are a believer and in Christ, you are always and forever on plan A. Even though it may be hard, even though it may be arduous, even though you don't understand it, God is at work and he's calling you, he's calling you to look up and see his glory. 
Again, by comparison, idols are impotent, yet Yahweh is majestic and powerful. But, but there's another thing to remember. Look back to verses 3 and 4. God here reminds Israel that he has carried them from their birth to their old age. He has carried them. He will carry them. This idea of carry, there's different words here, but it's, uh, it's, it's five times here in this, these two verses. Remember, the idols had to be carried themselves, yet God is saying, I carry you. Don't be duped. You have to work hard, and, and, and it's costly, and you actually have to carry your own idols, but I carry you. Alec Motier points out, all the pronouns here of I are emphatic. For example, I will myself. It's a touching underlining of directly, personal, tender, loving care. Not only is God powerful, high and lifted up, but He's caring like a mother. And He's, he's carrying His people all along. He's carrying you all along. He's carrying us together. Now this should move us from remembering who God is and what He's done, what He is doing, to rejoicing. Look at verses 12 and 13. Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness. I will bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Not only does God carry his people, he also saves his people. God addresses those who are hard-hearted, those who are far from righteousness, those who may be in thick with idol worship. He calls them back and says, you stubborn of heart, Look and remember, guess what's going to happen? I'm pursuing you, and I'm going to bring my salvation to you. I will do it. Another series of I wills. I will bring near my righteousness. I will bring my salvation. I will put salvation in Zion. And what's beautiful, he says, for Israel, my glory. You see, God, our Father, loves His people From square one. He loves us all. And in that loving, fatherly rebuke, he calls us out of idolatry and into the worship of our true God. Into the delight of him alone. That is what he's after. How does God bring us salvation? I want to read it to you. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Listen to this. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he inherited is more excellent than theirs. Here's the point. God is out for his glory. How does he get his glory? He gets his glory by sending his son as the Messiah to Zion, his people, to save them and bring them back into true worship, which is spirit and truth, which is in Christ, which is freedom. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. God wants your freedom. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Galatians 5.1 the truth shall set you free, and you shall be free indeed. What's the truth? The truth is, idols are counterfeit gods. They, they promise a lot to us, but they never deliver. 
However, God is the true God, and whatever he promises, he delivers. When he says he'll carry you, he will. When he says he'll save you, he will, and he did through Christ. And you see the difference. In idolatry, you're working hard, slavishly, to find significance and joy in life, but you'll never find it. With Christ, seeing his glory, Christ does the work. Christ has done the work. It is finished. You are free, and you are called to delight in him in the freedom of joy, of true worship. Let's pray. Oh, Father, um, I pray that you would do this in us. There are myriads of ways in which we fall short, and I'm so thankful for you, Lord, how you see us for who we are, and yet you save us despite who we are. You call us sons and daughters because of Christ, and you give us a spirit so that we may take great joy in you. Burn in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.